everybody. It's Movie Geeks United. Thanks for tuning in. We're taping this on Sunday night. Monday morning uh, is the or the Golden Globe nominations, so it's a chance for, uh, I'm sure, great performances like Johnny Depp and Murder on the Orient Express and Mel Gibson and Daddy's Home 2 to be recognized. <laughs> I would actually, I would really welcome Mel Gibson being recognized in that, even though I haven't seen it yet. I would, rec- I would really welcome that. I would actually... I watched it. I I went to the theater and saw Daddy's Home 2. And I got to tell you, all the way through it, I was thinking, you know, there's not a chance in hell Mel Gibson would be caught dead in this movie if uh, the scandal hadn't have happened. And he just directed Hacksaw Ridge, like a a widely acclaimed movie. And yet, in order to act, he still has to do this kind of stuff, it seems. Yep. But, uh, yeah. I'm ready for the What Women Want sequel. So, yeah. Well, he was charming in that. That's why I mean, that was that was well that was well suited for him. Yeah, uh, yes, it was. Anyway, so guys, what's up? Okay, well, uh, <clears throat> well, let's just get right to it, Dean. Let's just get right to it. <laughs> oh, what you? Okay. Well, you know, I've been watching a lot of screeners this week. Of course, uh, I was. We were snowed in down here in Atlanta, so um, I could not uh, get out to go see The Disaster Artist or The Shape of Water, uh, which are the two last outliers, besides, you know, some of the the end-of-the-year stuff like Phantom Phantom Thread and Star Wars, of course. So, but, uh, yeah, so I I sat in watching the screeners that I've gotten, and uh, so... Uh, one of the first ones that I popped in is one of the most acclaimed movies of the year, which is Call Me By Your Name, which is by Luca Guadagnino. Guadagnino is how you say his last name. And um, it's written, of course, by uh, James Ivory, the legendary director and screenwriter. Um, uh, And so that... The fact that Ivory is the, the producer and the writer really predisposed me to loving the movie, and so I thought, well, I'll go check. I'll check it out. So, yeah, I was. Uh, you know, it's kind of a. It's funny. It's. Uh, <clears throat> it's kind of a, it, another entry into this sort of new genre of the kind of uh, travelogue kind of movies, really, where they. Where the uh, the setting kind of takes precedent uh, over everything else. Uh, so in this case, it's a, a it's summertime in Italy in uh, the early '80s, and uh, we're following a very well-to-do family. Um, the father, Michael Stuhlberg, is uh, is a, uh, a uh, professor who studies antiquities, uh, statues and things, uh, and um, the mother is a Italian aristocrat, so I assume she's the one with all the money. And uh, the son in it, played by uh, Timothy Chalamet, uh, who's getting a lot of acclaim, is a uh, you know a 17 year old kid you know dallying around with a with a girl in town, but uh, 
uh, in the first scene of the movie, uh, in comes Army Hammer, who plays uh, Stuhlberg's new assistant. And he arrives, and the first thing that Chalamet says about him as he's looking down from his bedroom window is, wow, he seems to have a lot of confidence. And that begins this love affair that Chalamet uh, starts off with uh, with Hammer. Uh, you know, you know, I really wanted to like the movie, but uh, I really could not like it. And the reason for that is basically I was bored by it. Uh, like, oh, deadly, deadly bored by it. I did not feel the love between these two characters. Now, let me mention another movie, another uh, gay-themed movie that I think does demonstrate the love between the two main characters. That is Blue is the Warmest Color, uh, where you you get to know both of those people. They're interesting. They're funny. They're, uh, they're good together. Uh, they have great sex. And uh, and the the movie is is uh, is not, is very well made and very well observed, uh, extremely entertaining all the way through. Um, I know that some people might say that about this one too, but I personally did not feel the love between them. I felt a sense of lust, I guess, but I didn't really feel like they really had any kind of intellectual or emotional connection. Uh, other than this being, you know, Chalamet's, I guess, first first love affair, or at least first gay love affair, uh, and I, you know, I was just deadly bored by it. I was like, when is something going to happen in this? When is there going to be some real drama besides whether they're going to fuck or not? Which is pretty inevitable they're going to. So I didn't really feel like that was anything to to, you know, hang my hat on or anything. Uh, it's really just, you know, a series of, uh, you know, lunch table meetings and, uh, you know, uh, bike outings and, uh, lots of, uh, lots of swimming and, uh, there's a little bit of dancing and, uh, I found all of it incredibly stultifyingly dull. This is a wine and cheese movie, as I like to call it. This is the kind of movie that that uh, I think people uh, glom onto to show their sophistication. And, oh, um, I thought you mentioned you got to eat wine and cheese during the movie. Shit. Oh, yeah, you know, I mean, I think it'd be perfect with some wine and cheese, you know. But no, it'd have, it have to be top-shelf wine and cheese for this oh, movie. Oh, I was just going to go for the stuff to screw off top, you know, the cheese, you know, 7-Eleven. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I I um I struggled to find anything that I loved about it. I loved the countryside. I mean anybody would fall in love with this countryside. Uh, you know, you'd you'd fall in love with Jojo the dog faced boy and with all these uh, <laughs> you know Well I mean yeah, a movie can have beautiful countryside and have beautiful scenery, but the problem is it sounds like Army Hammy and Army Hammer standing in front of it, so you can't even see that. So I mean <laughs> And I mean, you know, Army Hammer is a handsome dude. I mean, you know, no question about it. Now, you know, Timothy Chalamet, Chalamet is, you know, I, he's getting a lot of acclaim for this. But and again, I wanted to love love him in it, but I just I just did not feel any real 
connection with him at all. And I did not feel mm. that it was an overwhelmingly. Uh, people are citing, you know, the final five minutes with his close-up, <clears throat> you know, uh, the, the final minutes with him as as uh, a sign of his great acting ability. And uh, it was okay, but I just, you know, I've seen I've seen other gay movies that uh, or other love stories just in general. Um, the ones that I uh, really respond to are the ones where I really feel the connection between the people. And it has to be it has to be it cannot be just a physical connection. That's too easy, and that that is also boring. Uh, like it's just that's, that's, there's nothing cinematic about that. Unless you know you're making a porn movie or something, I don't know. But uh, uh, like, don't knock, don't knock my hobbies. Don't <laughs> yes. uh, but uh, I just, uh, you know, I, I, it has to be. There has to be something more to it. And I know mm-hmm. that there's, you know, some. Uh, they're, they're both on an intellectual level that's comparable, I guess, uh, because they have, you know, obscure conversations about uh, uh, Franz Liszt and and. Uh, the derivation of the word apricot and stuff like that, <laughs> but <laughs> but, uh, but none of the, none of that really. I I didn't find any of that remotely um, captivating in any way. Uh, my big complaint is that there also is really just there's no laughs in it. There's no oh. This is supposed to be a if this is supposed to be a wonderful time for both of them, and there's there's they're so well suited to each other is. As a you know, a, a, an okay monologue at the end with with Michael Stuhlberg, you know he he kind of illuminates that you know he that monologue at the end is maybe adds the most interesting aspect to the movie, uh, but I, I'll let you discover that for yourself when you see it. But other than that, uh, the only thing that I really uh, could connect with in the movie was the beauty of the countryside. Uh, not even the way that it was photographed. I do like the photographer, but I, I question some of his, some of the directorial and pho- photographic choices in this. There's scenes that are out of focus for a really long time. I assume for some reason that I couldn't really figure out. And uh, I did like the music in it. Uh, the songs by Sufjan Stevens were good, and uh, and the music choices in general, whether they're source music or they're, um, uh, which is mostly classical. Uh, although there's some pop songs in there, and uh, and the score itself, I thought was very good. But that was it for me. Uh, yeah, that was a major disappointment for me. I know I'm the outlier here. I, I don't. That's uh... all right. That's okay. There's nothing <laughs> wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that at all. I mean, don't be silly. I pre- uh, I pre- I prefer bl- blue is the warmest color, or something like beautiful thing, or even Brokeback Mountain. Uh, uh, as far as uh, gay love, gay themed love stories go, well, may I throw another one out there? Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe a little bit rougher than those. Corel, Fassbinder's Corel. Can I throw that out there? As I've never seen it. So it's no. always and Brad Davis and um, and Django himself. Yeah, Franco Nero. Yeah, it's uh, quite a film. Um, you'll never forget it. I'll say that. Um, yeah, I don't mean that in a way that. It, <laughs> I, I have seen Taxi Zum Close though. And uh, that was uh, that was a memorable experience. That was yeah. the first gay movie I'd ever seen, and uh, I I think I saw it when I was fourteen or something. Oh something. wow! Okay. 
Uh, I don't know why they let me into it, <laughs> but anyway, it was at a theater that uh, it was a theater yeah. that, I, that they were used to seeing me at. So, uh, but they well, but they probably wanted they wanted the money. You know, sometimes you know, I guess like, you know. He wants, hey, we need to fill the seats. Get him in here now. Mm. You got any friends? Get them in here too. <laughs> yeah, but that was that was a memorable experience for sure. Uh, a little traumatic, I would say. Uh, but um, yeah, so I, you know, I'd be interested to see what you guys had to say about it once you finally see it. Now, uh, okay. Now you saw something, Jerry, this weekend that uh, I saw. I saw. I saw several things this weekend, and I will. Um, I did. I saw the Shape of Water. We'll, we'll get to that. But before that, we saw Wonder Wheel. And I have to say, I'm just going to go on. It's, I think it's the worst Woody Allen movie I've seen since anything else. I'm going to say that right now. I'm wow. Okay. I like Woody. Regard, you know, let's get a, get away from the tabloid stuff. I like Woody, and I think we've talked about this so many times too. Because he, he, anything he writes, he can get made. And after watching this film, I'm beginning to think maybe that's not a great idea. Well, I get the impression that he's pulling scripts out of the, out of the, you know, out from the mothballs sometimes. Well, it seems like that. My 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 number one complaint about this movie, more than anything else, is you can minutes into it. We had this conversation last year about fences, but with fences, it was understandable. It is based on a play, so it is going to have that play-like quality to it. But this film also had this feel to it. I, I felt like I was watching a, a staged um, play. Um, many times, because it really doesn't change locations that much. We're, we're really sort of stuck on Coney Island for a majority of the movie. So, to recap, Kate Winslet is married to um, Jim Belushi, and they are um, just scraping by, working on Coney Island. He works as an amusement park, um, I guess, what, what is it, amusement park technician, mechanic on one of the carousel rides, and he's barely scraping by, and Kate Winslet is a waitress. And Jim Belushi's daughter from her first marriage shows up played by Juno Temple. And they have, uh, Kate Winslet has a son who's a pyromaniac, as we see. That's the, the, some of the film's only, like, comic relief, if you will. Justin Timberlake plays a um, playwright who is a lifeguard on the, on, on the beach there that Kate Winslet starts to fall in love with. My big problem, other than the play-like quality, is that Kate Winslet is the Woody Allen surrogate of the film. Mm-hmm, Think that's about interesting. that for a minute. It doesn't always work, guys. You know, it's not comfortable watching an accomplished actor try to play a nebbish Jew, neurotic Jew, okay? It's really just not fun. Um, Kate Winslet can't do it. Christina Ricci certainly couldn't do it. Um, I don't know if Kenneth Branagh did it well or not. I, I still don't know. But it's not fun. It's excruciating. It's painful. I just, I'm going to say, it's just not fun watching someone play Woody Allen. And I think we have that. Sometimes they do it very well. So there's some actors who, when they are the surrogate, do it very well. Like in Vicky Christina Barcelona or something like that, they, they do it very well. But when Woody's not in the film and someone's trying to, basically his stand-in, I think the movie falls flat. It and takes you out of it. It, it just it just well, does. Well, took you me just... out of it, guys. Yeah. This took me out of it in a way that I, because I'm, I'm really watching it, because I was looking forward to it. I think we, we can all say, I think every time there's a Woody Allen movie, I think among the three, and, and, and also including Chris and Adam and Aaron, we all get excited still for a Woody Allen film. I think that's a fair assessment. I think we can honestly say that. For me, it's tempered um, excitement. It's excitement. Well, for me, it's just it's, 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 it's excitement with preparation for being massively disappointed. 
Well, the last time I was really just not. Like, how about this? Under, you're underwhelmed, I think, more than your own. You're, you're underwhelmed a lot of times. Like the one with Josh Rowland from a couple of years ago, you only had a tall, dark stranger or something. That one just. Like just, you, you sort of you went to go see it and you left and you forgot about it. I think it's in the <coughs> theater. Mm. I could I couldn't even tell you what that movie was about. Um, yeah, what which one here, was that? You will you will meet a tall dark stranger. Which one? That's was the that? one with Josh Brolin and I think oh god, Anthony Hopkins. Oh, okay. is it? Oh yeah. wow! I just I you gotta forgive me. I don't remember it. Um, I really, right, which was such a shame. But, such a shame because I thought that Anthony Hopkins would have been a perfect actor for Woody Allen. Yeah, yeah. Because Anthony Hopkins always talked about, I just, I don't want to do more than one or two takes. I just want to move on. I just want to, you know, let's get get in there, get out of there. And it's like, oh, he should work with Woody Allen. They would probably get along well. But uh, Mm -hmm. the worst Woody Allen I've ever seen is Curse of the Jade Scorpion. Yeah. Better than Curse Curse of the Jade Scorpion? It's, it's, uh, It's right down there. It's it's right down there. That's a good because I always I often think that's one of the worst. And we can honestly say of a director with this kind of um, um, filmography, that's the worst this century. I think still, I do think that's absolutely the worst. Um, just bottom of the barrel, Woody Allen. Two See, comments. Pro- I got okay. Well, tell me the problem. No, no. I like Cafe Society, and I know I'm in the minority now, but I actually like that movie because there's also some humor. In that, and Jesse Eisenberg is perfect. That he's, he's got to be—he's perfect as Woody Allen surrogate in that film. I mean, there's no—I I think we can all agree he's just—he plays—he he, because he's just playing himself essentially, really, in that movie. Um, and it's also nice to see him act opposite Kristen Stewart, like you know, as a follow-up to Adventureland. So I thought that was a nice touch in that movie, and there was a good performance in that. Is it a—is it you know a truly memorable movie? No, but it's a decent movie. I couldn't get this out of that one. So yeah, that's my. There's my two cents on Wonder Wheel. Okay. Okay. Two questions. Two questions. Okay. How is the Vittorio Storaro photography? Because that's one of the major things that made uh, Cafe Society work for me. Well, it's great. And I'm going to tell you where you're going to really notice it. When Justin Timberlake is on the screen, no one is lit quite as well as him. I mean, there are scenes, especially his eyes. You would you would have thought that um he had a crush on Justin Timberlake the way that was shot. I mean, mm. there were like three three scenes that um he was just like holy shit he really, oh this guy got something for Justin um but no, call me by your name <laughs> call me by your name <laughs> exactly but no no you just made me think of the Bernard Herman being obsessed with Genevieve Bourgeois on this session okay um but <laughs> um. It's, the movie is shot beautifully. I have no complaints in that department. There's a lot of beautiful cinematography in the movie, so no, okay. we, we can definitely give it an A plus for that. Okay, no so that's that. that's at least one reason to see it. Uh, yeah. Okay. Oh. Now here's another thing. Are you getting as tired as I am with the constant use of the mafia uh, as some kind of trope to throw into that he throws into his movies to create danger? It, it doesn't. It doesn't work because I don't feel like it's really. It's not really much of a payoff in this film. I mean, it's nice to see the two guys from The Sopranos in the movie, but they're not in it that long. <laughs> they sort of come and go. I mean, you're just like, wow, okay. Uh, I hope. I hope the catering bill was um, paid that day. But I mean, you know, um, no. It's not. It actually, when you come to think of it, you're, you're hoping that those characters 
or in a couple more scenes, but they're not even in it. No, it, it's it's a very late. I agree with you, Dean. And somebody who likes gangster movies a lot, I think what Woody Allen does is there's something very lazy about it. It's a lazy. It's almost a cop out, if you will. Yep. Yeah. I think it's I think it's a well that he goes to too often. Um, you know where it worked? Broadway, Danny Rose. That's yes. not work. That's where it really worked. I mean, really, I thought the best. But this is well, what about his major uh, uh, mob thing, which was uh, Bullets Over Broadway, right? Oh, that too. Oh, that too. No, those, those are fine. But it, it, it seems like in recent movies, it seems like a fallback that doesn't completely work anymore. Yeah. Um, well, uh, uh, a, a lot of his motifs, uh, people feel that way about a lot of his recurring motifs. Uh, you know, he has a dream project. Uh, that he just can't get the money for. It would be interesting to see if he would force himself to become a bit more ambitious if he were given money for his dream uh, jazz movie that he wants, he's wants. he been wanting to make forever. Uh, oh, wow, yeah. Jeez, if he wants to make it, why did like, he make it? Because it's too expensive. Uh, oh, and he oh. doesn't feel like he can get the financing for it. Uh but the um, it would be interesting if somebody like uh, what's the chick's name, uh, 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 the A A N, uh, oh, whatever her name is. Anapora, oh, oh, the um, Ellison, the, um, the Ellison. Yeah, daughter, Megan um, Ellison. Yeah, I was, I was way the fuck off. It was yeah. interesting. No, no, she, no, you got the, you got the company Because she's been right? given lots of money to auteurs in the past to do their dream projects. So it'd be good if. Maybe she could do it for Woody Allen, so we could see if he's, you know, worth his medal again. Mm. Mm. Okay, so moving on from that, uh, have we seen the Darkest Hour? Have we seen Darkest Hour? Oh yeah, yet? yeah, I, I saw, I saw that a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, I liked it. I, I thought it was a good um, Churchill um, movie. Um, I actually, no, I actually liked it a lot. Um, have we all seen it? Or yeah, I've seen it. I watched it. Uh, I I uh I was prepared for something you know rather stodgy and that's kind of what I got basically and so uh so the disappointment level wasn't wasn't high uh it, it uh of course I like Gary Oldman uh in it uh, mm-hmm. but I don't think that he disappears in the role really I mean you can you know that it's Gary Oldman always underneath all that stuff and. Right, and, right. And he's he. Let's let's be honest. He's he's a thin guy, wiry thin. So he's wearing mm-hmm. a, a fat suit that's not entirely convincing. Um, at this time, he, he's also playing the uh, uh, ten years older than he really is. You know, uh, the Winston Churchill that he's playing is around sixty-eight, mm-hmm. sixty-six, sixty-seven. Right, right, right. And and he's he's fifty-eight, fifty-nine. Um, and uh i feel like they didn't really <clears throat> he didn't really get the the body movements down correctly or just the body language in general there's the there's a, just a sort of uh sense of him being a jaunty jaunty thin guy under all that stuff i mean he's able to bound up you know two flights of stairs with uh, the greatest of ease and uh and uh he, he charges down hallways and and stuff, and he, he seems to, he seems to be very, uh, very fit. 
uh, and uh, that's not what Winston Churchill was at all. So no, no, but, no. He's eating a lot of Dundee fruit pot, fruit cakes, you know. So I mean, you're having a Dundee fruit cake, you know, for breakfast, and you know, and and you know. and uh, and and a fifth of a fifth of scotch. But yeah, uh, uh, yeah so. Um, to me, this struck me as the kind of movie that I guess uh, people who maybe didn't like Dunkirk for its lack of um, its lack of human connection, I guess um, this this is kind of more of what they wanted. I guess uh, is uh, uh, more more scenes of. Uh, you know the planning of the uh, planning of the evacuation, uh, evacuation, and everything like that, and the and the uh, the connection that he foments between his uh, he and his uh, and his um, his typist, uh, who's sort of the young person surrogate in the movie, played right. by Lily James, uh, and um, I uh, I didn't really connect with very much of that really, but. As a kind of a historical movie, I sort of enjoyed it, like on in a in kind of a passive way, I guess. Uh, I I I didn't love it. Uh, right, in fact, right. the thing I loved most about it was the Dario uh, Marinelli uh, score, which I thought mm-hmm. was was brilliant. A great the scores for of- Joe Wright's movies are always really good. Yeah, and this one's uh, heavily piano based and uh, mm-hmm. quite. Quite good, uh, uh, Joe. Joe Wright's, you know, visual style. He boy, he loves the overhead shots. I mean, he. Um, yes, he does, especially when he's in the plane flying over and you know surveying everything. Yeah, he really, really. Good. I think almost gets carried away with that. Um, that that part of the movie. Um, there were a couple of them though that were really dazzling. There was. There oh was yeah. One, there was one that uh, you know starts off as a as a bombing raid and. And as the camera pans over, we we find ourselves, you know, uh, very close up on a, a young boy's, you know, obviously lifeless face. Right. Uh, and I, I thought that was very impressive. Uh, uh, some of them are very, very good, uh, but uh, it seems like a, a little bit of overkill in it. Uh, and I'm not quite sure what it's what it what it means. You know, the right, overhead, right. Oh. Uh, overhead shot, all the preponderance of them. Right. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I I I is I I feel somewhat indifferent to it, really, because I'm. I, I get what you're saying. I really do because I like. I I think I like it more than you, but I feel indifferent only because I think because I watched. All right, I feel like this is the third thing I've watched in a, in a year uh-huh. that is about. Uh, like I so said, we we'll go with season one of the series of Crown on Netflix, which covers this. Um, in part of it, and then we have the, the Christopher Nolan movie Dunkirk, and now we have this. I'm not saying it's overkill in that sense because I, I believe, especially in light of current events, you cannot have too much of this kind of movie as a reminder of how things can go south and everything. But I understand what you mean about indifferent. I think um, I look. I love Joe Wright. I think I've seen everything by him, and I, and I for the most part, really do admire his um, filmmaking. And I like Gary Oldman. I think Gary Oldman's very good in this. I think the performance, though, I think is actually very good as Janet McTeer as um, as um, his wife, Clementine. I, I thought that was actually a very good performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not getting the attention it deserves. And I also thought, if him, is, it, is that Ben Mendelsohn? You'll have to forgive me. I don't remember. Is that Ben yes, Mendelsohn as the, the king? The king. He was excellent. 
Yeah. So I thought the scene where he comes to visit him in the end and basically give him, like, I'm, you know, I'm with It's not even going to have a problem with it. Is the scene in the, the underground? Yeah, that, that was really cornball. No. Did that happen? I mean, because that was just, that to me just seemed like a real, really too movie-like moment, you know? Just too, almost like a Frank Capra kind of moment, almost. It um, was. You're absolutely uh, right about that. Uh, that I mean... That scene uh, seems to garner the ire of many people, and uh, it just doesn't feel real. And um, and uh, so that's 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 never that's never a good thing for a movie of this type. Just it takes you it takes you out of it. Uh, I, see, that's my problem. I was really into it, and I still I, mean, I, mean, I like the movie. Here's the thing: I like the movie. I know it's Oscar bait and that sort of thing, but. You know, there's just some, there is something off about it. There's something that makes me not love it. Um, so, so that. is uh, is Winston Churchill the uh, is that the rite of passage now for seasoned British actors? Is it like the new King Lear? Well, let's hope like not. I mean, because it it, really, it it is seeming like that with so many people having played him in the past uh, ten years. Albert even. Finney. Albert Finney. Albert I mean, Finney. We've, we've gone through we've gone through the list, but uh, Finney and Lithgow and Gambon and and uh, uh, and uh, yeah, Brendan Gleeson. Uh, yeah, Brendan Gleeson was very. Yeah. Those were very good though. Those are the one made for HBO. Those I thought were very. I actually like those. I think better than this. Yeah, I did too. Uh, the Gathering Storm and so forth. Mm-hmm. But uh, yes, uh, I am. Um, and it's funny, you know. Um, the Gathering Storm is a, is one that you know really uh, gives lets us get to know uh, Winston Churchill quite well, and I I didn't uh, I didn't feel this movie touched on him personally like uh, in terms in terms of his uh, depression I guess I mean it never makes any mention of his depression really I think it I guess it kind of visually displays his depression in the, in that. Uh, uh, Joe Wright makes a habit of showing him boxed in in a lot of places. Uh, he's a big personality, boxed in the small places, uh, bunkers and little rooms, and literally boxed in like in the uh, in the frame. Um, Let's not forget Young Winston. Let's not forget that movie, please. Let's, uh, that's, that's I, a, that's I haven't a, seen that since I was a kid, so it's hard for me to remember very it. Popular. Very popular with my older brother Saul. He loves that movie. So um, let's not forget yeah. uh, Dunstan checks in. Hey Dean, last last week you ended the show by teasing us that you just you saw something astounding that you'll be talking about this week. Yeah, that's right. Uh, oh yeah. Um, well, uh, this movie is a mind blower, uh, and let's be fair, uh, it's really our friend Adam that mentioned the movie the first time, uh, because he mentioned it as a uh, DVD release a few months ago, and uh, technically it's a movie from 2015, but uh, it is uh, it was eligible for the documentary Oscar this year. Oh. It, was, it was on the list, uh, the 170, which has now been whittled down to 15, the 170, but it was on the 170 list of the eligible documentaries this year. 
It's uh, it's by a director named Daniel Rame, and it's called Harold and Lillian, a Hollywood love story. Um, oh yeah, okay. This is uh, this is like for this. I would compare this to something like uh, Searching for Sugar Man, only it's for movie fans, not music fans. This is like finding lost treasure, just like uh, just like. Uh, Sugar Man was, or Bank Called Death is another one. Uh, but this is like finding a lost treasure map or something. It is extraordinary. It is about Harold and Lillian Michelson, uh, who uh, were uh, instrumental figures in Hollywood in, from the 50s on to the early 2000s. But they were rarely... Um, especially in the first part of their career, were rarely ever credited. Uh, Harold uh, Michelson was uh, the premier storyboard artist for movies like uh, an astounding array of movies. Uh, I could, uh, you know, Ben-Hur, Ten Commandments, uh, The Graduate. um, You know, you can go on and on. The The movie... List them all out for us. Um, But apparently his talent was so great. Uh, And, and of course, Hitchcock movies like uh, like The Birds and and Marnie and so forth. And then all the way up to things like Shrek uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, So basically his vision was so acute that when he was handed a script, he could visualize it so well so impossibly well that when the directors would see his drawings they would not veer away from them at all in terms of visual setups so all that stuff that you're seeing this blows my mind that all that stuff for instance you're seeing in The Graduate that previously you might you you would have attributed to the creativity of Mike Nichols, who won the Oscar for it. Uh, it's real. It's really the work of Harold Michelson, uh, because all of those all of those camera setups and everything were followed down to the T. The famous leg shot that comes from him. That's not, oh wow. That's not from from Nichols. There are many many instances of this. Uh, I mean, the reason that Hitchcock wanted him, requested Harold Michelson for his movies, was that he saw that he was the best. And uh, this movie, okay, so I haven't even gotten to Lillian yet, because she narrates most of the movie. Michelson, Harold Michelson passed away a few years ago, so he's not interviewed. uh, He is interviewed for the film, but he's... He's not in it quite as much as Lillian is. But uh, this movie makes you question everything you thought you knew about movies. Oh, wow. Uh, every, every, everything, that you, uh, everything that you had attributed to directors, you find that, that it really comes from another place. And uh, I don't know how I feel about that, really. <laughs> I mean, for instance... Now I'm looking back and, you know, I do this thing on filmicability where I, uh, you know, 
going through every year. And now I'm thinking that maybe, maybe, maybe Nichols doesn't deserve the best director Oscar for, for, uh, for the graduate. Now, like maybe I'm thinking, I'm thinking, maybe Jacques Tati is a better choice because at least we know it came from him. Uh, but right, right. I, I, I feel, I feel very. I know that these uh, storyboards are used as a guide for filmmakers, but and certainly Harold Michelson comes in in this movie and says, "Well, look, Mike Nichols directed The Graduate. When I read The Graduate on the page, I didn't think it was funny. I didn't know why anybody would want to make this movie. But then when I saw the movie, I realized that that it was Nichols, you know." odd sense of humor that really brings it alive. So it's definitely a Mike Nichols movie. This comes from Michelson. Uh, so, uh, but uh, still though, I mean, it's such a visual, it's obviously a visual medium. And um, to just do, <laughs> to, to just abdicate your uh, your vision to the person who uh, does the storyboards, I don't know. It's uh, you know. I mean, I know if they're really great storyboards, you don't want to throw that stuff away. But um, geez, I don't know. There's a, I have a moral quandary with all this stuff. But all that stuff's very interesting <laughs> still. Uh, by the way, Mike Michelson eventually went and did uh, uh, was became an art director, and was nominated twice uh, for for art direction Oscars. Once for Star Trek: The Motion Picture. And uh, also for uh, terms of endearment, um, but those were the first times that uh, he was ever credited on screen. Now we go to Lillian Michelson. What did she do? Well, she ran the biggest and best film research library in uh, Hollywood. Uh, to so good, so good that eventually Francis Ford Coppola bought the entire library when it looked like it was going to close down. And just moved it over to Zoetrope Studios, where uh, you know it remains, I suppose. Um, Lillian, my a film researcher, also not uh, not credited for most movies. What they do is they, uh, if a film is set, say, so she did the research for The Godfather, for instance. So. Uh, when you need to know what olive oil cans look like in two, uh, 1906, she will get that for you through her library. She will show you what the you know art direction notes, uh, what cars, uh, clothing. Uh, she was she was tasked at one point for she did uh, Fiddler on the Roof, and they needed to know what Jewish women's undergarments looked like in 19th century Russia. Well, they didn't have any photographs to go with or whatever. So she did the only thing she knew what to do. do and She went to a heavily Jewish neighborhood in, in New York, um, found some, some of the old, uh, uh, old ladies there, and uh, asked them what their undergarments looked like. And uh, that's how she researched things. You know, she would she she would be tasked with almost impossible uh, uh, requests, and she would always come through. Um, and uh, both of these people were so revered that 
by the 2000s, by by you know the 19 late 90s, early 2000s, uh, they were kind of the king and queen of Hollywood. In fact, in Shrek, the king and queen are named Harold and Lillian. Um, so they were very well loved by the the top people in Hollywood: Spielberg, Coppola, Scorsese. Uh, and this movie is, on top of all of this, it's an incredibly moving love story. I mean, I was weeping at the end of it. No. Uh, it was so good, and uh, they're both such great uh, interview subjects. Uh, Lillian is particularly vivacious, even in her old age, uh, and um, I, I just... I just adored it. I cannot believe that it is not being talked about, and it did not make the, t- the final 15 for the Oscars, which, you know, I think they just went with an entirely political slate uh, because they didn't even they didn't even cite Keedy, the the uh, the cat movie. So, uh, but uh, I cannot recommend this movie highly enough. If you're a movie lover, Harold and Lillian, a Hollywood love story will just knock you for a loop. <laughs> I mean, it just it just astounded me. One of the best movies of the year. Absolutely. No question about it. Wow. Well, one of the reasons why nobody's been talking about it is because, they, I mean, we did a show about the movie over two years ago. Mm. We had Douglas, Douglas Raym on the show to talk about Harold and Lillian. And so... If it's been percolating for two years, I mean, maybe it feels like old news. Uh, maybe. I don't know how that went. Maybe it took them that long to find a distributor. I, I don't remember. I think I was interviewing him for a film, fest, film festival. Okay. But this is actually the third in a trilogy of movies he made about old Hollywood. And the second one is really good, too. Something's Gotta Live, where he talks to uh, Henry Bumstead and Robert Boyle, production oh, designer. Me. Con- Conrad Hall and Axel Haskell Wexler, and while he's making the movie, everybody dies uh, except for Haskell Wexler. Uh, but yeah, he died after the movie was done. But uh, so that, that was a moving movie as well. But yeah, it's a good film. Anybody uh, see uh, First They Killed My Father? No, I haven't yet. I haven't watched it yet. I want to. I just haven't. So I haven't gotten it around to it. I'm sorry. It's good. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think, it's this, uh, I think it's this, the strong. Um, no, uh, no, I mean, there are, there are a couple of scenes of carnage, but it's not necessarily about the, the carnage. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's all told from a little girl's point of view. It's basically the, <clears throat> the what the killing fields uh, covered. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so when they when they uh, captured the uh, Phnom Penh, and they, they right. took all the all the families there and made kind of POWs out of them for the most part, um, this the girl was one of those. Uh, her, she came from a wealthy family uh, for that area. Her father worked for the government, which made him an enemy if anyone found out his true identity. And uh, so it's 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 it sticks well to its um, framing device, which is to experience 
the conflict through this girl's eyes. So it alternates between her point of view and uh, a God's eye point of view when there, when there are a lot of people being shepherded, shepherded from one camp to another or, or working the camp. I mean, it's impressive. It's impressive visually. Anthony Dodd Mantle shot it, mm-hmm. uh, but he didn't, he didn't shoot it with a, uh, it's very graceful photography. It's not shot like day glow colors, like a sun's, uh, that millionaire movie, Slumdog Millionaire. Um, I thought it was really uh, touching, and the girl is amazing. Dean, you might have a problem with it because <laughs> the girl, the Why girl would says I have very little. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but but I think it's. Um, I don't think she needs to say very much because I think everything she she thinks and she feels, it's expressed in what the we see, the cam the camera sees, what she sees. And if she were to articulate it, it would diminish the images. I think it's a movie told most strongly through images. Now that being mm. said, there is a lot of dialogue in it, and she does speak in it. Um, but uh, you know, I, I thought it might end up in my top ten. I thought it was a really valuable movie. Oh, mm. cool, good. But uh, well, that's good. you know, maybe it won't end up. Yeah, yeah. And it's not. Look. It doesn't. Uh, I mean, uh, of course, America was complicit in the the rise of that regime. Right. Mm-hmm. Of course. Um, but it doesn't. Uh, it's not like. A, it doesn't scream out. This is this is what we need to see in the Trump era. You know, it's not. It, it's more. It feels more sacred than that. It feels like we need to we need to remember and 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 honor what happened to the, the 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 families, the legacy that that conflict had. I mean, it's one of the great genocides in in history. Yeah, no, no, uh, um, millions I, millions of Cambodians killed. This mm. is her strong point. Going back to her first film, um, which is about Yugoslavia. This is remember her whole thing. She's not really. Cons- I mean, she's not. I guess the first time we're aware that cinematically that Angelina Jolie is much more interested in something other than movies or looking good or whatever is probably Beyond Borders um, with Clive Owen. Well, on action film and everything, it does we do begin to see the seeds that she's very interested in the world around her and her UNICEF work, her UN work, um, the Google Ambassador, that sort of thing. And that's where I think she becomes really interesting. So with the exception of the Honeymoon movie, the other three, the other two films, at least Unbroken, and I don't remember the name of the Yugoslavia movie, but they're very, they were very well-made films, and this one looks very good, too. I just haven't gotten around to watching it, but when she sticks to this stuff, she's, um, she, she's I think that's her wheelhouse, really, her background lately. Yeah, it's just, it's, just, so it's her strongest directed movie, and you could tell it's her most personal, too. It's the one that mm-hmm. she probably felt most urgent to, to make. Um, right. Because uh, her son is also involved in the production, Maddox, and a big, oh, okay, big motivation cool. for making the movie was for for him to to know the the, the heritage of his his home country. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, like I said, it could win best foreign film. It could. It's no, and, and we talked about that months ago. We had, we had said you had said that, so I don't see why it shouldn't if it's if it's as well made as you say it is. And I guess. Does it look like Faces? Pl- well, does it look like Faces Places is the front runner for Doc? Yes, I guess so. 
at this that point. Insane, I would and it's that de- it insane. definitely made the it, it made the final fifteen. So yeah. Um. Okay, so I have the top the fifteen shortlisted documentaries. Uh, we have Abacus, Small Enough to Jail, which of course was about the the Chinese American uh, bank that uh, was prosecuted for fraud um, wrongfully. Uh, Chasing Coral, which I assume is about the disappearing coral reefs. Uh, City of Ghosts, um, not quite sure what that is. Uh, Ex Libris, the New York Public Library, which is uh, Frederick Wiseman's uh, documentary. He's never been nominated for an Oscar ever in 60 years. Uh, of course, he won the special Oscar uh, last year for his lifetime achievement. Uh, Faces Places um, is uh, on the list. Human Flow, I don't know what that is. Icarus, which is the Netflix documentary about uh, Russian cheating in the Olympics or in sports in general. An Inconvenient Sequel, Truth to Power is on the list. Jane, which is about Jane Goodall, the the chimpanzee specialist uh, and uh, uh, zoologist. Uh, L.A. 92, which is yet another movie about the L.A. riots of that year. Last Men in Aleppo, which is, of course, about Syria and the horrors there. Long Strange Trip made the list. Uh, oh wow! Which is, which is about the the work of the Grateful Dead. Uh, One of us. Not quite sure what that is. Um, oh, that's on Netflix too. That's about the uh, I want to think was it that Jewish community if I'm not mistaken. Okay, um, I, could, I think that's what it is. I think um, I'm not positive. Uh, Strong Island, which is about a miscarriage of justice uh, visited upon a, an African American family. And unrest, which I'm not quite sure what that one is. So, um, you know, I, I'm I, I find very little to get excited about. I hope uh, I hope Frederick Wiseman is finally nominated. That's that's what I can get. I would love to see a, a race between Frederick Frederick Wiseman, Steve James for Abacus, also another guy who's never been nominated. And uh, I don't think he wasn't even non- nominated for Hoop Dreams, and uh, and Agnes Varda and Jr. for Faces Places, even though I haven't seen it. You know, it's going to be something interesting. But um, Icarus is timely, since Russia was just booted from the booted out of it. Yes, yeah, it is. Uh, and it's and, uh, it's in, it's interesting. It's an interesting movie. It's not. And 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 it is one of those documentaries where uh, uh, the events are happening as they're being filmed, where the the whistleblower comes forward uh, on camera. I mean, and, and and the camera crew tries to take him to a safe place where he won't be assassinated. <laughs> they try to get him out of the country. I mean, it's uh, it, yeah, it, it's a it's a it's a good documentary. It's not one of my favorites, but. Mm. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm finding it difficult to get excited about it, really. I know it's something I have to watch, but it's, it feels a little like homework. Um, okay, so let me mention two movies that I, that are critical darlings that I absolutely hated, 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 down to the bottom of my toes. Oh, shit, here we go. <laughs> hated, hated, hated them. 
Okay, well, the first first one that I hated le- less is Hostiles. Um, Scott Cooper's not my favorite director. I didn't really like Out of the Furnace and Crazy Heart. Oh, was, is that why Christian Bale's in it? Okay, I was wondering. Okay, all right. And, uh, um, and uh, of course, Crazy Heart was fine. You know, good, good, you know, lightweight movie. Um here, uh, Christian Bale is a Indian-hating um, uh, army captain who is uh, he has good reason to hate the Indians because they almost killed him uh, in an ambush, uh, and um, he has charged uh, at the, in, in 1892. He's charged to escort a Cheyenne chief played by West Studi. And his family, uh, which includes Kiorika Kilcher, who played uh, Pocahontas in, in the New World, uh, to uh, across the country uh, through they, you know uh, territories that are controlled by other tribes and uh, and to their their home that they've been uh, allowed to have, I guess, by the U.S. government. And uh basically he doesn't want to do it. He and uh and but he's kind of he's forced into it and oh boy. Uh this comes from an old script by Donald E. Stewart who is a you know uh now dead veteran screenwriter. Uh I guess uh you know, most I you know, I knew his name from, from his writing uh an officer and a gentleman, but uh uh Jackson County Jail, Patriot Games, Clear Present Danger, uh, Missing. Uh, that's probably his most uh, most notable uh, screenplay, which he won an Oscar for. Uh, oh, he didn't. He didn't write. Uh, um, I must be thinking of somebody else who wrote uh, Officer and a Gentleman. Anyway, Missing is the one that he did, and uh, this one. <clears throat> this one is just. Uh, First of all, it's one of those movies that I just feel like I can see it being directed. You know, it's like, you know how like sometimes you'll see stunts being played in movies and there's a certain kind of phoniness to them. You can almost you can yeah. almost hear the director saying action and cut. <laughs> you can just there's something phony about them. I I I, I can't put my finger on it or I, how to I had it. I had the same the exact same reaction to uh my friend Dahmer. Oh, okay. That yeah, I saw you, this weekend. Like you, yeah. you could tell. You could tell. Okay, the camera's about to to swish past you. So start your action. Start pretending like you're talking or walking or doing this or that. Uh huh. Like, you know, you it it's it, it felt very like uh, stagey. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I I you know, it's not a feeling that hits me very often. But when it does, it really is just. It's hard to break out of it, and I, I just really. I could not connect with it, uh, uh, you know, just directorially. Um, it it all seemed uh, it all seemed artificial. Um, a major complaint with it, besides its you know unrelenting brutality. I mean, you know, uh, kids are killed in the first scene. You know, <laughs> it's like they're just killed. Bye, bye. Uh, you know, uh, the, the matter of fact. Uh, the matter of factness of the brutality in it, and it's also very clean brutality where nobody dies a painful, horrible death or anything. It's just, oh, I'm dead now. Uh, but 
Uh, also, it's another white savior movie where um, where uh, the white guys get all the lines and the Indians don't get any lines. <laughs> we don't even know who these people are. They're not giving any kind of character to it. I mean, you got West City and, and Kirioka Kilcher, but wh- why are they there? They don't even they, they don't even need any a- real actors for this. They're just mm-hmm. uh, you know they're wasted. Uh, and uh, and you know, of course, we got the what's that what's that guy that was in Hell or High Water who played the the crazy brother uh, Ben Ben. Uh, Ben Foster's in it. Ben Ben Foster is in it, playing another crazy guy that can't be Good can't be reined in. Work still. Huh? Glad he can get work still. Good. good I, to get I'm him. I'm glad they're all working. Uh, <laughs> but uh, um, I just I just despise it. Rosamund Park uh, Pike plays a plays a mother who is who loses her children in the first scene and and is. Uh, this is the kind of movie that has not one, not two, but three scenes of people uh, screaming to nothing in the air, you know, like, ah, just screaming, you know, like, it's such a, it's such a cliche. Or there's also another cliche thing where she gets to, her, somebody that she hates, uh, one of the Indians that she hates, she, uh, he's dead. And she takes the gun and just fires into his body over and over again with very deliberate pacing. And I was like, boy, I've seen this in a few other movies, too. I was like, you know, it just all of it felt cribbed from other sources and and, uh, and, and it never really felt like it was coming from the heart. And uh, it, I, it just felt phony. <laughs> I just despised it. It was so unpleasant, <laughs> so such an unpleasant watching experience. I don't know why. I just, don't, you, I just don't think. Uh, I just don't think Scott Cooper is like the the new. I don't know. There's just some uh, thing that he's been built up as, like some kind of new American, uh, like a Sam Shepherdy kind of guy. And uh-huh. I, I mean, I I don't I, didn't, I don't I find didn't him know. that. I didn't, yeah, I, I don't that find him that impressive, really. I mean, everything good about Crazy Heart is Jeff Bridges. And you can say, well, the music is good, but that's because of Jeff Bridges, because Jeff Bridges is the one that brought in T-Bone Burnett to write the song. Um, yeah, so I do, I I do I love Maggie but, Gyllenhaal in that movie, too. But, yeah, I agree completely. I, I do, you know, And it really feels like, you know, it really doesn't – Crazy Heart doesn't feel like where Scott Cooper's heart is, really. I think he's more interested in, in telling more brutal stories, more more violent stories. But I think he really needs to, needs to up, up his game a little bit if he's going to go for that. Otherwise, let's pull back and let's do some stories that don't involve blowing people's heads off. Um, okay, so another movie – that I despised, and then I want to hear about my friend Dahmer. I despise this with every fiber of my being. <laughs> I, I do. I'm, I'm interested in it. Uh, I despise this. It's, it's I Tanya. Uh, oh, really? Is that oh. bad? Oh God! Oh man! I haven't seen it yet. So I <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I'm again. I'm an outlier on this. Uh, but uh, for there are me, some people that find it repugnant and, and condescending and. There are there are people that really hate it. So okay. uh, 
that's good. So yeah. I'm not I'm not entirely alone. It's a great trailer, though. It is a great trailer. I have to give it that. It's a, it's a, it's a great trailer. It's, it's edited well and everything. I think the editing in it, because it does keep things moving very quickly, uh, is something that maybe uh, is fooling people uh, into uh, its quality. It's Again, it's another entry into the Goodfellas uh, sweepstakes. that um, has, has the, the freeze frames and the, and the, Ironic narration and people talking to the camera and stuff. Uh, but everybody in it is completely, utter, utterly trash. Not only, and, and I know that, that you know Tanya Harding. <laughs> I know Tanya Harding is not doesn't come from you know royalty or anything. But there has to be something to like about the about the people uh, because I, I just. Uh, the uh, to me she's a punching bag in this, uh, and I mean she's she is she is uh, slapped around not only by her husband uh, Jeff Galuli played by Sebastian Stan, but also of course by her mother played by Allison Janney who's getting rave reviews, and yes she's I do love Allison Janney and I love Margot Robbie too, but uh, and I think they're fine in it, uh, everybody is, but. Uh, it, again, it's another uh, delve into incredible, unpleasant, incredibly unpleasant people and actions. Uh, it's the kind of movie that has a fat character, which is a, you know, it's a, it's something that I despise. Is when a fat character is seen in every scene eating, like. You be fucking meeting meeting the Queen of England and you're eating a sandwich. <laughs> He's like eating a sandwich while Tanya is on the ice, you know, at the Olympics or something. I'm like, come on, they don't have to have him eating it every scene. I, mean, I know he's a fat fuck, but come on, can you give the guy a break? Uh, so you know, and of course he's he's one of the worst people in it, and you know, because that's just the kind of movie this it is. Uh, um, you know, uh, I, uh, is it supposed to be funny? Uh, is it supposed to be funny? I guess it's supposed to be funny if you're laughing at the people, uh, for, uh, if you're laughing at them, feeling condescending to them, uh, I guess if you feel better than them, uh, which anybody would, um, then I guess he might find some of it funny, but I didn't find any of it funny at all. Zero. Here's here's what it strikes me as. It almost, and I I don't know. Maybe because we live in such outlandish times now, people respond to it more. But it seems like uh, like a Jerry Springer production that's being misplaced yeah. as like high art satire. Right. Whereas I would rather watch, the, you know, I would rather watch Jerry Springer's movie Ringmaster, which is actually kind of an underrated movie, than watch something like this, because Ringmaster has has at least some respect for its characters in it. Uh, this, no, zero respect for anybody. Nobody is seen as, uh, you know, and Allison Janney. As good as she is, it's a one note performance. I mean she's you know once she's, she's the mother from hell. So. She's she the, mother the mother from hell. She's obviously the worst mother that we've seen probably on screen since since mommy dearest. Uh just absolutely a terrible 
person, but once you put that makeup on her, that haircut, and give her that brown cigarette and everything, and the glasses, that the job is done, buddy. That's it. That's all you take. Right. Yeah, it's just, It's just a a one-note horrible thing, huh? What's the question? Is this a movie that reconfirms, um, I don't know how, I I can't answer how this, I'll just say, is this a movie that reconfirms people like that Hollywood just looks down on on this class of people? It just reconfirms that 100, I mean, it sounds like 200% from your review of it. Oh, Um, it definitely doubles down on it for sure. I mean, we're talking about the maker, this is the maker of things like Mr. Woodcock, and I guess the top movie of his career is maybe Lars and the Real Real Girl, which is not a movie. Guy made, Lars and the Real Girl made this? That's a yeah. totally different tone. I mean, yes. Yeah. And he also made Fright Night, which is a, a movie that I like as well. So, I mean, he's not... The remake, the remake of Fright Night, right? The, the remake yeah. of Fright Night, yes. Okay. Uh, so, um, but uh, yeah, Craig Gillespie is his name, but I just, you know, boy, can we stop doing these Goodfellas movies? I mean, can we just can? We, uh, uh, oh God, let me just say this too. This is another movie. <clears throat> oh boy, this drove me nuts. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Absolutely nuts. Every two minutes, a new top you know top forty song comes on the thing. I mean, uh, ev. Oh God, I mean every single. Uh, you know, kind of. I mean, there's there's spirit in the sky is used, and there's uh, uh, everyone's a winner uh, by Hot Chocolate, and it's just I counted how many so- needle drops there are in this movie, and there's almost forty needle drops. So it is a movie that is not that long. It's uh, it's uh, it's right at two hours. And there's literally 40 songs in it. You just you cannot have a they just cannot have a scene just play out with just no songs in it. You're like, what? What am I listening to? To America's Top 40 with Casey Kasem? What's going on here? Like, mm. can we can we just dial this back? You know, and I know people. people I think want to. Yeah. I think they might have chosen the wrong uh, tone for it, like the wrong genre of movie. And I I think they chose the easiest path because, uh, I mean, Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan, that kind of broke around the time of tabloid culture. I mean, there was a big kind of uh, tabloid magazine, like uh, TMZ-esque kind of story, and it was irresistible trash for the masses. I think a more interesting and original and challenging version of this would have been something like, I don't know, like one-hour photo or something. Like someone who was so deeply insecure that no matter how hard she works, uh, she can never uh, come across with the kind of poise as someone that she views as more privileged, like Nancy Kerrigan. Mm-hmm. Uh, that she resorts to this kind of behavior to subterfuge her, and and it can be like one of those um, one of those will do anything to achieve American success stories. Um, you know, I mean, I think game, a different you know. a different sort of directorial treatment would have brought something more out of the story than what we get, which is sort of a mockumentary type uh, setup. So that's that's where the sort of the cues to laugh come in. I, I I did not see this with an audience, so I don't know what the audience thought of it. 
you know, I, I well, suspect that's, that's, that... I mean, that's, that's my point. Look, what we know of the story is tabloid. So we yeah. don't need a, version, a tabloid version of it. Show us something that's deeper. Show us something that means something. I completely you know, agree. That we haven't seen. I completely right, agree. Right. Just mm-hmm. doing doing it like uh, doing it like an episode of you know uh, you know whatever that you know uh, that Inside Edition or something like that. It's not the way to yeah. go. Um, and every so, time they show every time I understand this. Every time they show Tanya Harding's interview, she's got like dirty dishes behind her. Uh, like uh-huh. her apartment's filthy and shit. And, you yeah, know, they stack the decks to make it so obvious. Yeah, and, yeah, and I mean everybody's lazy. smoking in it and stuff. I mean, it's, you know, uh, you know, even even Tanya Harding. So I don't know. That's uh, and they don't really get into you know Nancy Kerrigan or anything very much uh, as a as a character. So that's another I think big minus. And uh, uh, you know, it's uh, I don't understand these critics. Do critics think that everything at the end of the year is going to be good? I mean, do they do they just go on autopilot? Uh, you know, when they go out and they praise something like this, I, I just have they not seen any movies, or are, we're, are, are is it just that we're in an age where anybody can be a critic, and it doesn't mean doesn't mean that you have to know anything about movies anymore? Uh, you just have to. Hey, I like going to movies. I'm gonna. Oh. Uh, it's like. He's, he's, and they all sound like Jerry Lewis. <laughs> Wait, Jerry Lewis wrote Root film reviews. Holy shit! <laughs> oh man, but uh, so I mean, you know, I I, I could tell what it was going to be from the from the trailer, and uh, so I can't say that it was it was really disappointing. It just confirmed my uh, it confirmed my suspicions. Uh, so I cannot mm. recommend it <laughs> at all. Well, I was desperate to use my movie pass, and there was nothing. You know, maybe I'll go see that Tommy Lee Jones uh, thing <laughs> with uh, with Morgan. I Freeman. cannot believe. Yeah, I can't believe Ron Shelton. I mean, he got another movie made. I mean, good on him. But uh, right, man, it looks really bad. I heard it's really bad, though. I mean. It looks like something that you 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 want to watch on like a Sunday afternoon when you're passing yeah. time on HBO. Like you wait for it to come on cable and you'll check it out when you got nothing else to do. I can't imagine mm-hmm. going to. This is why people don't go to the movies anymore. <laughs> Shit like yeah, that. I mean, all right. I went to see Coco uh, today. I think I see Coco. Uh, what? Oh, you you saw it? Yes, it's actually very good. I mean, it's actually really, really good. Um, Coco. I was not. Ex- yeah, I was really not expecting it to be as good as it was, but I was really pleasantly surprised. So, did you think it was funny though at all? Uh, it, was, it had its cute moments. It's actually a really quite um quite a serious you know, movie. It's a very serious movie. I, I actually think it was really one of those Pixar movies that's aimed more at adults than it is kids. To be honest with you, um, just given the themes and everything, I won't lie. And that's probably why I liked it because it's more aimed towards the. Adults. I mean, I mean, looking around, there's some funny moments. It's about death. I mean, let's not beat around the bush. I don't know how that would be appealing to a youngster, a little, a, a very, you know. So, yeah, could, could uh, well, you know, they haven't shied away from you know things that uh, could provoke difficult conversations between parents and their children, uh, especially given 
Inside Out a couple of years ago. Yeah, that's with, really that kind of filmmaking. So, I, I yeah, well, I'll have to sit and watch all of it. I'm kind of <laughs> dreading it though. <laughs> I was happy like to. Those, I was happy like to. Those, uh, <laughs> I was just one like more note about. Uh, okay, go <laughs> yeah. ahead. One more note about Coco was uh, I was happy to hear that uh, I did some research. I said one of my problems with it was I was sitting there and it's like so steeped in in Mexican culture and everything. I was oh, sitting there is. going, why wouldn't they make this in Spanish? <laughs> I was like, you know, it just seems weird that. Uh, this is not in Spanish. Well, I did some research and discovered that in twenty about twenty states in the nation, it is playing in theaters in the Spanish language version. So I think I think right. that was good. That's that a was good, a good that's thing. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. I'm, glad, I'm very glad to hear that actually. So that's good. Yeah. So. So anyway, I was, you know, I was, uh, I, yeah. <laughs> okay. As I was saying, I was desperate to use my movie pass. So I settled on uh, my friend Dahmer. Uh, <laughs> and um, AMC has this weird thing now where you uh, – it was a theater I used to manage for like six years, and I haven't been there in forever. But I walked in there and like, okay, it's all reserved seating. Uh, so pick your seat. And it's a confusing like layout map. I couldn't tell where, where I would be sitting even looking at the seating chart. So I said, all right, this one right here. I walk in there, it was like fucking 12 people in there. <laughs> So it's not like uh, I was beholden to that seat I chose. Yeah. Anyway, that was that was a pet peeve. I so, I, don't, uh, I don't like all that stuff. By the way, that reserved seating stuff, I don't like it. Oh, I I I it makes life a lot easier. I won't lie to you. You don't have to rush so much. To I won't lie. It's not a. I I I, I like it actually. To be quite honest with you. I well, okay. I so play. what if you found somebody sitting in your seat? Well, ask Mandy Patankin, okay? I happened to him when we went to go see uh, Rules Don't Apply. Someone was sitting in his seat, and the guy refused to get out of his seat. So he had to go sit in the back, okay? Ask Mandy Patankin what he thinks of it, okay? <laughs> okay, he will be. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Well, I think it way, just op- opens it up for a lot of uh, contentious talk in the theater. I don't know. So it certainly is. By the way, uh, and I, I promise I will finish my my friend Dahmer thoughts. But uh, oh, sorry. I'm sorry. The rules, I'm sorry. I'm the sorry. rules don't apply. Rules don't apply. Do you know that Steve Mnuchin is in it? And he's a producer on it? Well, he's producer on a lot, on a lot of, of movies, yeah. So, yes. He's in it? What, yeah, what I'm does surprised he play? Warren, Warren Beatty allowed that to happen. <laughs> yeah. So am I. Oh, my that God. Is, that is surprising. You're right. Huh. Anyway, okay. Speaking of uh, people like Steve Mnuchin, my friend Dahmer, Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> uh, it, essentially, it's about his uh, adolescence, uh, lead out, leading up to his first murder of a drifter. Uh, it's quite. It's really bad. I, I mean, it's not. It's not uh, Ed Wood bad. Uh, it's. Uh, it's. Cinemax' Christopher Atkins thriller, thriller bad. It's uh, like uh, Holy you know, shit. Shannon Worry. Shannon Worry should have played the mother in it. If you remember that oh, 80s yes, Cinemax, I do. I do. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, shit. That's a uh, but as it is, Anne Heche plays the mother. Uh, Dallas Roberts plays the father. Dallas Roberts is really bad in it. Um and uh, the the best the best person in it is Dahmer's 
uh, I guess you could call it his best friend because he didn't really have many friends. Uh, but he's played by an actor named Alex Wolf. I recognize him. I don't know what I recognize him from, but he's really good in it. Um, the guy that plays Jeffrey Dahmer, I think he's known for some kind of kid series or something on the Disney Channel. Uh, and and it's, a, it's a big, it's a big departure for him, and he's he's fine. But the movie, it's just so obvious. It's like, well, I don't know how you make it not obvious. I, I knew that it would be kind of tired stuff when I went to see it, and I I wasn't disappointed on that front <laughs> because it just you know he picks up roadkill, he melts it with acid. Uh, he's, he can't fit in with anyone. The only way he could fit in is acting like a spaz. Well, the only thing that was surprising about it, there were two things that were surprising about it, is that that he um, he was known uh, in high school, and then people said uh, people used to oh, I forget what they said, but he used to spaz out in public, and it would make everybody laugh. It kind of got him entry into a group of semi-cool kids in high school, but it was more that those cool kids loved to make fun of him and loved to see him embarrass himself. Uh, it wasn't kind of like a true friendship kind of thing. It was a laugh at his expense. Um, and they used to have some phrase like do a Dahmer or something like that. And so when you hear, <laughs> when you hear these characters talk like that, you'll, you know what Dahmer turned into. You're like, Oh my God, it's incredible. Uh, and also that Jeffrey Dahmer, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer met uh, Walter Mondale. That's the the new stuff that I got from the movie. And, and the mm-hmm. Mondale thing is completely random. He like took a Washington D.C. tour, and he uh, shook hands with Walter Mondale, and he said that uh, he was interested in going to college for biology. Is what he told Mondale. That's that's that was the value of. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> wow. And there's scenes that are played for comedy where you're like, eh, is that really funny? It's like, it seems so forward. Uh, I, I mean, if you want to see a movie on Dahmer, I mean, geez, uh, I, I guess see the, see the one where Jeremy Renner played Dahmer. He did a good job playing yeah. Dahmer. But yeah, yeah, all right. the movies are the same. You know, they're beholden to a formula that, uh, you know, the kind of story that we've seen a million times before. We, yeah. we, we can we can write it we can write it in our heads before we go to the theater. He didn't fit yeah. in. He, he 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 was interested in the animals and the way things worked on the inside. He just he was living in his own cocoon of of uh, dejection and the divorce and awkwardness and being a closeted homosexual and. It just it became perversity in his mind until he finally kind of lived out his ultimate fantasy, which was to kidnap and to kill and have sex with the corpses. I mean, you know, that's a I've, I've written the movie. What a what a lovely tale! <laughs> I just I'm over the uh, just in I'm time for the Christmas season. I mean, yes, yeah, I mean it's a good Christmas movie, isn't it? It's like something it, you take the whole family to see. Uh, and it goes Birdman. This is the definition of counter programming. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, just to show that I did not hate everything that I watched this week, which, uh, you know, I know it seems <laughs> like I did. I know, it's funny, you know, it's funny the way you said that you have to, like, you feel that you have to. <laughs> it wasn't a better week in, in watching movies, uh, but, uh, I did re, I did finally visit, uh, uh, Stronger, uh, the David Gordon Green movie from earlier this year with Jake Gyllenhaal as the survivor of the Boston uh Boston bombing uh the marathon bombing and uh I was m- very impressed by this movie uh I was I was taken by surprise by it uh I know you saw it earlier in the year did you like it Jerry I I, I, I liked it don't get me wrong no I liked it I don't know if I liked it as much as you did but it was great what I was very impressed with it I just really impressed by David Gordon Green's um you know Diversity in projects. I mean, it's it, 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 you know it's the last thing you expect from him, and then you know he's doing this, and then you have the final season of Vice Principals on at the same time. So it's fascinating to watch um, both, you know, the, you know, in the same time period. So yeah, I mean, he, I think he he's does kind have of a, a, I think he's kind of a laser. He has a very lazadaisical feel for me as a director, and this movie didn't really. Uh, this movie didn't really get started for me. Until uh, the relationship really got started, you know, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, then then it became like a move, like something I can't see in a doc, in a little hour long documentary on TV about the triumph of the human spirit. Then it became yes. a little something more when it was specific to his relationship with her. And also the thing that really brought the movie alive, because for me the movie doesn't come alive until the until the uh, until the bombing happens. Uh, but uh, and so that means the first twenty minutes uh, felt a little off to me. Um, but uh, once the bombing happened, what I really liked about it was that it was not a rah-rah tale of somebody, you know, uh, overcoming, you know, incredible odds or whatever. But it was really about him, besides the fact that the uh, it's about the relationship between he and Tatiana Maslany, who's also fantastic in the movie. Um, but, yeah, I mean, uh, you got to give her props for this. I mean, you yeah, really she, do. She was she was really really good at it. Um, they both were, but I felt like it came alive also in the examination of the character's um, inability to accept everyone's adoration for him. Yeah. I felt like yeah. uh, I felt like that was the that was that was the main thing there that he. He's constantly being called a hero. Uh, you know, Bostonians, you know, typically uh, glom onto uh, uh, heroic figures. You know, they're, 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 it's a it's a hometown kind of town. You know, I mean, they, they love they love their own. It's you know, Boston strong is the is the phrase that's thrown about a lot in the movie. Mm-hmm. And I would assume in Boston as well. Uh, so, uh, but he he can't accept it because he, he sees he sees what happened to him as just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah, and there's nothing heroic in his mind about that. So when he comes around, those scenes where he actually comes around to 
understanding what he means to Bostonians. Uh, those, and particularly, and particularly, an incredible scene uh, with he and the uh, the guy uh, who saves him, at, you know, who tends to him at the at the bombing scene. That was an extraordinary scene with those two at the table. I was just blown away by it, and uh, and I was really, really affected by just uh, you know the troubles that this uh, you know he's a he's a worker at a Costco. You know he's 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 the very de- they're the very definition of middle class. In fact, I would put mm-hmm. them in the lower class because they're yeah. I would say- you, when the when the problem when the problems arise, you know, with him, you know, having to be in a wheelchair without his legs and so forth. Well, he's mm-hmm. living in a, on the second story of an apartment complex. Yep. Every day he has to go out. He has to navigate those stairs, and just uh, just everything everything seems to be such a Herculean task uh, that you do wonder how anybody gets through it uh, with their sanity. Uh, but uh, the, I thought the movie, once it gets going, I do I do agree with you that it, it takes a little time. But once it does get going, I found it very very effective. So, so I don't hate everything. <laughs> you know. I want to go see yeah. my friend Dahmer and Ferdinand as a double bill. That's what I'd really like to do right now. Oh, I'm just gonna see that right now. And there was something. I mean, I went to I went to the last show. So when I got out of the movie, it was after midnight. And so I'm walking out of the theater to my car, and I hear the a couple of girls behind me who are getting out of the same theater. And like I said, there are like 12 people in the theater, and I heard overheard them saying, "I'm walking in front of them," and I overhear them saying, "Yeah, I wonder how many people in that theater are actually serial killers." <laughs> and the other girl said. And the other girl said, "Yeah, like I right here." <laughs> oh God! <laughs> oh no! <laughs> uh, not the most encouraging comment out there. God but, damn it, man! That's harsh, dude. You should you should beat the shit out of all of them. <laughs> I should have done what Dobber did in the movie. I should have started spazzing out as soon as I yeah. heard them say that. Like, yeah, you should have. Yeah. <laughs> they would have never forgot it. <laughs> oh man! Well, you know. Uh, other than that, all I've been watching for the past day is uh, I've been watching the the Crown, which uh, the second season, which is yeah, I gotta fantastic. get started on that. I gotta get started. I love the first season, so I gotta uh, get started on that. Oh boy, there's a couple of episodes in the middle of this season that are just uh, episodes five and six. Are the ones that just wow, okay. <laughs> wow! They were so good. Oh, good, good. But I like this show a lot. So I mean, it's a good show. I do like it. It is. It really is. Now let me ask you, the guys. <clears throat> okay, so what do you guys think about film critics, including Sight and Sound? Uh, the Sight and Sound critics picked uh, the third season of. Uh, Twin Peaks as their second favorite movie of the year after Get Out, which I think is kind of crazy. But uh, and people are people are. I know that it's a it's a you know early in the year we said well this is the film uh, event of the year or whatever, but is this really a film? Come on, I mean come on if we're if we're gonna do go this route. 
are we going to start, you know, naming Big Little Lies? I mean, I guess the thing is films, you know, people who are defending it saying, well, it was directed by the same guy, it was written by the same guy, it's all of one vision and everything like that, and say, well, are you going to put Big Little Lies in there as well? Because it's written by the same guy, directed by the same guy. <clears throat> is that on the table? How about how about the night of? Is that on the table for best film of the year? I, I just I I I don't buy it. Let's call it TV because that's what it is. Yeah, I mean I, I understand what you're saying, and I know that that that, that line is starting is starting to get blurred. But no, I, I yeah I, I I've been seeing people do that, so um, I. Yeah, I wouldn't. I mean, I, I still I got I got to go back and watch, I buy the Blu-ray and watch it again before I could even make an make an assessment like that even um, about this one. So, uh, well, it is a TV win. series. I mean, it, it was aired on television as a series, so yeah, it's yeah. not it's not a it's not a gray line like uh, Netflix producing a movie because those are movies, right. two hour movies. So I, I think those are up for grabs. But uh, on the other hand, David Lynch did say this is an 18-hour movie when he was promoting it. It's just divided mm-hmm. into 18 parts. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, I think it's I, I think it's cheating, but who cares? It's not like uh, taking steroids for the Olympics cheating. It's not. I don't know if it has any Would ramifications. Would you stop making really. fun of my hobby? <laughs> I know I've never taken steroids, but I'm saying everyone wants to use. Poor those poor Russians. I'm joking. Um, yeah, I don't. I I I I don't buy into it. Um, you know, if you're, if you know, I know that last year we included, you know, OJ Made in America as in our top tens or whatever. And uh, you know, but actually, in retrospect, now I kind of feel wrong about that. <laughs> it's like because it. It was a TV series. I mean, I watched it as a TV series. I watched, you know, I took a break between, you know, episodes and, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, that's just not well, the I way movies all the, are. I watched it all the way through. I watched it all the way through, and it did it did air in theaters as a theatrical feature. It did air in a theater. Yes. And it was, it, I don't think it was, no, it was produced for ESPN. Uh, yes, it was. It was. Commissioned. By ESPN, but uh, you know, uh, movies are made that come on theaters that were commissioned by uh, television studios or internet studios. CBS Films had, used to have a division. I think that they went under when one too many movies got uh, panned. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so uh, I don't know. Uh, OJ Made in America was the most astounding thing that year. So part of me thinks, look. If this if this piece of media or this piece of entertainment moved you more than anything else in its visual storytelling, then yeah, why why not include it? But uh, it's not going to hurt anybody. Well, I'm not saying that it hurts anybody, but it definitely muddies the water, I think, a little bit. in in terms of, well, I mean, hell, the uh, the Oscar committee had to lay down a new rule that said that no TV productions could be um, could be considered. Um, so, uh, right. uh, uh, you know, that's the that that immediately got rid of the prospects of something like Five Came Back, which is also, you know, is a great thing from this year. That, yeah, uh, you know that's been thrown out. Uh, <clears throat> you know, 
you know, but somehow a long strange trip makes it in, uh, which is two two hour episodes. So, um, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I just, uh, I, I can't, you know, if you're going to do that, I would just say, look, I, you know, I did consider this last year that I thought about, and I thought about it this year and decided not to, but I did think about just saying television was is my number one movie of the year. Just everything that I, that I saw and loved on television. And I mean, it goes for this year too. I mean, you know, with you know, Feud and Big Little Lies, Five Came Back, and uh, uh, yeah. you know, Wizard of Lies and Twin Peaks and so forth. Uh, you know, uh, and Vietnam War. I mean, are we going to start talking about Vietnam War being a whole movie? I mean, it's uh, it's also eighteen hours. Um, so yeah, I I I don't buy it. <laughs> I just can't buy into it. It's uh, yeah. Critic- you're talking. I mean, you're talking. You're talking about critics end of the year list. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> in general, so I mean, uh, I'm okay with it. But uh, you know, if I saw if Wizard of Lies was one of my top ten favorite movies, because even though it aired on HBO, I think of it it's a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's okay. And, I'd be and, okay, more okay with that. No, Wizard of Lies is not in my top ten. <laughs> I just want to make that clear. Okay, but, um, but, but it's movie but, shape, you know. <laughs> you know, at least. Yes, it's the shape of movie. Yeah, I, I don't think, you know, I I still, I, uh, you know, as much as I love the OJ movie, I just, uh, it's 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 not a movie. <laughs> it's just not. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I won't do that again, I don't think. Yeah, i do it in a heartbeat. If another OJ Made America came out, as I, uh, I mean, I watched it as a movie. I didn't think of it as a series, but anyway. Did you watch it? Did it have uh, did, credits at the end and the beginning of every episode when you watched it? Yes. Okay. Well, it was definitely an episodic television series then. Yeah, and there, uh, you know, I guess. <laughs> I guess, I guess, creep creep show is not a movie either because that that's episodic in nature. Well, it didn't have credits at the end of every episode in creep show. I mean, it's it's cut into segments. Uh, yes, it's an anthology movie. <laughs> uh, okay. Does this mean I didn't see cold blood? Incredible heart. Can I have the trial of the Incredible Hulk from the like nineteen eighties? Can I have that as a <laughs> Yeah. Your favorite movie of nineteen eighty is Incredible Hulk? No, from the, the Trial of the Incredible Hulk. It was really bloody awful actually, but can I just get it a TV movie? Can I add oh, that? Oh wow. The trial of the Incredible Hulk. That's or a real thing? Add, yeah, no, it's a real TV movie. But, you know, that they made that thing in like '87 or '88. It's, it's pretty bad. I mean, no, I like the original series, but they made these TV movies later on. Oh God, Dean! Oh my God! You just wanna, you just wanna split your wrist. Um, but, but what about the one with six million dollar man returns and his sons in a movie and they get Jamie and he's got Lindsay Wagner and everything and it's really bad. Lee Majors looks like he's had a one too many before they start shooting and um, you know. <laughs> 
Okay, here's they're both, here's they're both here's selling the, hearing aids. <laughs> yeah, no, no, of course. <laughs> okay, so have you guys heard about this? Okay, so uh, you know, The Shape of Water, which I haven't seen yet. I don't know if you've it's seen it. It's a good movie. It's a good movie. Good movie. It's a really good movie. Okay. A weird movie, though. A weird. A very. If this is getting the moment it's getting is um, perplexing because it, it's not a mainstream movie at all. I mean, it's quite out there. But it's a good. It's, a, it's classic Del Toro, though. Really classic Del Toro. Okay, but let me let me bring this up. Oh shit! In 2015, a short film from the Netherlands came out. It's 13 minutes long, and it's called "The Space Between Us," and it's about a cleaning woman at a facility. Uh, the world is kind of is running out of oxygen, so everybody has to wear masks. There's no dialogue in the movie, almost uh, almost no dialogue at all. It's only 13 minutes. It's made by students in in uh, Netherlands. Made very well. Um, uh, it's about a cleaning woman who en- encounters a fish-like man in an upright tank, and uh, they have a connection, an emotional connection between the glass, and she facilitates his escape into the ocean, uh, where she joins him. And uh, the movie the movie ends with them both under under the water, and she drops her oxygen mask, and there's some kind of you know there's some kind of idea that they're now in their perfect place. Mm-hmm. But the fish man looks like the fish man in, in, uh, you know, the shape of water. Uh, the girl looks like Sally Hawkins. The art direction is exactly the same, and the color scheme's exactly the same, and the situation's exactly the same. Oh shit! So what the hell's going on here? Okay, <laughs> so, I'm not. I did not. 2015. Know. That means okay. So <clears throat> Del Toro says that he he came up with the idea when he was asked to do Creature from the Black Lagoon That's for Universal. That's what I figured. That's what I'm figuring because he's been attached to that for so long, you know, for okay. a couple of years. So 2011 is what I've what I've learned that that that's when that project was brought to him, and he couldn't come to terms with Universal. But okay, so let's just say like the the let's just go. There's one or two things. Somebody's stealing from somebody. Either he's stealing from them or they're stealing from him. Okay, so we either got the Netherlands students who are stealing from Del Toro. But to believe that, you would have to believe also that they got not only the idea, the script. But also just the idea in general, but also the uh, the look of the movie, the look of the tank, the look of the fish guy, oh, like God. all of that stuff. What like okay, so did they not just get the script, but they also got like art director drawings and drawings of the of the uh, creature and stuff like that. Who's stealing from oh, who? What's the more God, plausible? <laughs> What's the more plausible oh, 
I, th- I think Ron Howard should sue because Splash came out like yeah, right, that's like what I was gonna say. Splash is the big is really you can't help but think that Splash while watching the movie. I like I like the movie a lot, but Dean, this really throws a monkey wrench in the movie though. Um, if this is if this is all true, oh shit. Oh, my God. I don't want to fuck with the Netherlands because you know they have a secret army, man. You don't want to fuck with them. <laughs> well, you can go and watch The Space Between Us. That's what it's called. Uh, it's a short. You'll have to Google The Space Between Us short film, and then you will be able to see the video, which is on YouTube. Well, not no. the movie that came out earlier this year about the kid who's from who's born out of space or on another planet and comes to Earth and has the affair with the girl, you know, that like, the teen movie, remember, came out, and that's the space between us, too. And oh, yeah. The kid, the kid from the, the boy with the striped pajamas, I think, is in it or something. But um, Right, right. And they, there's a feature called Space Between Us. So Don't yes. get it confused with that, kid. Don't get it. No, Dean has brought up a... Oh, God, this changes everything. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, I mean, I was, I was pretty stunned by it. I was like, wow. I mean, they even... I thought the, it was funny that the girl even looks like Sally Hawkins. Uh, and she That's, never says anything, so she's, you know. Oh, shit. But, uh, so it's, there's a lot of similarities here, man. I mean, just the. Sally the, Hawkins the, doesn't say anything either, does she? Because she's deaf. No, she's she's a, she's a deaf mute, yes. <laughs> she's a mute, so she can't oh. see anything, but, um, holy, Dean, holy shit. <laughs> can't get a big movie made anymore, but, oh, my God. Yeah, so... I'm, Here's I'm, another odd thing. <laughs> we talk about trends every year. Like last year, every movie was about grief. <laughs> oh, yeah. This year, <clears throat> this year, you have... I don't know where the hell this came from. You have Wonder, Wonder Woman, Wonder Wheel, and Wonder... Uh, that profess- what the hell yeah. is up with that? And that, Wait, that What's prof- the last Wonder? Wonderstruck. Wonderstruck. And then there's also oh, yeah. that Professor Martin and the Wonder Women or whatever. Yeah. I mean, why didn't Terrence Malick wait till this year to release <laughs> To the Wonder? That's, well, that's what I wonder. <laughs> to the Wonder Woman. To the Wonderstruck Woman. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand that either, really. Uh, I don't... I, I don't get it. It's weird how trends are happening in Hollywood. What do they do? They see... Do filmmakers see... Other things that want to <laughs> want to steal I have a serious question for you guys, though. If you like Logan and Logan Lucky on your top ten list, can I just add it as one film? <laughs> can I do that, or I can't do that? Okay. Uh, would you let me you do, do that? You if it, thank yeah. you. I just, hey, I you can as like, long as you don't you put like peaks on there. You could also Chris this year. This year, this year, you could like Logan. Logan Lucky, and then Lucky. You can like. Yeah, the, I was thinking that too. The, <laughs> it's like the new version of Martha Marcy Bay Marlene. It's like, it's like uh, Logan Logan oh, Lucky Lucky. <laughs> we like yeah, Logan Run, Logan's Lucky Run, or something like that. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's, 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 is Hollywood a place where people are constantly looking around for what's on other people's plates? I hey, mean, that looks I, good. Let me have a taste yeah. of that. Yeah, no, Dean, I think you brought up this thing with the shape of water is really deflating. I mean, 
That's not coincidence. That's that's really just. There's a movement. There's an online movement. There's an online movement. I think there's some kind of petition. I haven't seen it. I don't know what it is, but there 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 are people who are looking for answers from Del Toro on this. Uh, He's gotta come clean. If this is really, this is gonna be, especially if this thing gets the nominations, it's gonna get. Oh God! Oh my! Oh, I can see international. Some of the like a few a few years ago when everybody said James Cameron copied Delco or whatever that movie was for Avatar, that animated movie. Oh like yeah, the, that animated the, film. The floating, yeah. floating islands looked out just alike and the look of it. And, mm. and I do I do think that James Cameron went a, a little bit beyond what he saw in <laughs> that Ferngully animated I always thought it was. Ferngelli in the last rainforest he stole from for Avatar, but <laughs> you're right. There are there are similarities. Uh, yeah. Well, this is so obvious though. This is this is a this is a case of somebody is taking from somebody else. We just don't know who. <laughs> oh my god. So, because the similarities are too heavy. Dear dear Guillermo del Toro. What the fuck are you going to do now? Oh, <laughs> shit. Well, it doesn't matter. Cause More like his... Guillermo del Horo. <laughs> <laughs> del Horo? I love it. I love it. Uh, people are like, some people who are defending him say, are saying, look, he's got tons of things on his plate. He's got a, you know, Frankenstein movie and a, and a blah, blah movie and this and a, you know. Dude, and and he doesn't. Say. They're, say, they're saying. Tons of well, things on his plate. Tons well, of things on his plate. You shouldn't say that. You're like, you're actually talking about what he's going to eat. Tons of things on his plate. He has no motive to really steal from other things because he could do another project easily or whatever. Well, that doesn't matter. <laughs> no, but even that's, that's actually not true, though. He really can't. He had a he had a major franchise taken away from him, Hellboy. You know, they rebooted that because everyone was hoping he'd make a third Hellboy, myself included, and they took that right away from him. Um, that was just taken right from him. And you know, what were the reasons for that? You know, one of the reasons I was talking to a friend of mine at work, too, he is not, as we know from reading profiles on him, he can't seem to bring something in on budget, on time, and the movies don't make money. I was surprised there was a sequel to Pacific Rim. Now, notice he's not directing it this time, but Pacific Rim, while a fun movie, was not a block, was not what we call a blockbuster It was movie. overseas, though. It was overseas, but I'm just saying it was not like a, so they did make a sequel, but he is... He, his pet project that he wants to make is a based on H.P. Lovecraft um, at the Mountains of Madness or something like that, mm-hmm. and he can't get it. He can't get that made at all. I mean, and his track record is not great lately. In the, in the sense of financial track record, it's not great. So, do you do you find do you find that there is a certain contingent of the critical community that loves Del Toro? Like they love, uh, like they love Edgar Wright, and that they want to make one of his movies successful by, by uh, praising it to high heaven, even at the, 
at the expense of, you know, <laughs> being real about it. Uh, well, you know, he made a masterpiece. He made maybe two masterpieces, The Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth. Right. That's rare. That's rare in the directors. And even Cronus, let's say that one, too. He has fumbled. I mean, Crimson Peak is not a great film by any stretch. Visually, it's neat, but it's not a great. I feel like you know, it's kind of like been there, done that, you know, kind of movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think people, I think people actually are genuinely, genuinely love Shape of Water. I think they, yeah. they feel a great emotional catharsis with Shape of Water. Yeah, uh, I mean, I haven't seen it either. But in the industry, I mean, uh, who doesn't like Del Toro? Just uh, personally. Uh, yeah, and you can tell it guy. when he's when he's given interviews. I really, he's mm-hmm. one of those great guys to talk about movies with. Mm-hmm. He's yeah. very, very smart about movies. <laughs> 